This is an ABC podcast. Hi, Paul Barclay here, coming to you from Nam on this Big Ideas. Indigenous health advocate Professor Ian Anderson's vision for developing a new model for Indigenous health and wellbeing from the ABC Boyer Lecture Archives. And we'll hear from the most recent series delivered by distinguished Indigenous community leader, lawyer and academic, Gugu Yimidia man, Noel Pearson. In this lecture, he explores the ongoing effect of welfare dependency, or passive welfare, on Indigenous communities arguing it's not just a problem for First Nations peoples, it's a human problem. Here's Noel Pearson with The Bottom Million. In this lecture, I will put the case that the recognition of Indigenous Australians in the Constitution is critical to closing the gap on social and economic disparity. Our Cape York agenda is based on the metaphor of the staircase. The staircase to development and freedom. It has three parts. Its foundations, its underpinning support structure, and the stairs themselves. The foundations of any healthy community are social and cultural norms. The underpinning support structures for the staircase are the opportunities, education, health, infrastructure, property, that support individuals and families to build their capabilities. Finally, individuals and families choose to vote with their feet to ascend the stairs of opportunity. It is families who climb stairs. No one has come up with a mechanism for social uplift that involves a mass elevator for a community to ascend all at once. Stairs are climbed by families, urging their individual members to climb with them and investing in them to be climbers. That's our three-part formula for community empowerment. A strong foundation of social norms, investment in opportunity so that individuals and families can build capabilities to make good choices to improve their lives in pursuit of their own interests. Properly understood, self-interest is the engine of development for families and for societies. No development is possible without it. This is how development occurs. The idea of social and cultural norms is conservative. It is about personal and family responsibility. That is why we start with a budget at the level of personal responsibility. We say to our mob, a better life begins with a budget. That's how we start the journey of family empowerment and social change. There is no getting around the need for personal responsibility. But our people also need opportunities to make a better life. This is the next step. 
supporting families to get their domestic lives sorted out. Income for basic needs, education for the children, health services for each individual, and a prideful home for the family. By providing opportunities in return for exercising personal responsibility. We always want this to be based on reciprocity. A hand up, not a hand out. But responsibility and opportunity must be supported and enabled by structural change that allows Indigenous communities to take responsibility for our own empowerment. That is the top level. The structural reforms so that government support enables us to develop rather than weakening us with passive welfare. The ultimate structural reform is constitutional recognition, from which everything else cascades. This is the arc that connects the constitutional recognition of our people with the personal responsibilities and opportunities of every individual and family. This is why I support a constitutionally guaranteed voice in our affairs, because properly designed, it will enable Indigenous people to take responsibility for the problems we face. Our communities live our problems. No one is better placed to solve them. This is the only path to closing the gap. Over the past two decades, we have made certain progress with structural reforms. We created new forms of government partnerships that show promise for the future if they were formalised and if they were scaled. We worked with Queensland Premier Peter Beattie to implement Cape York partnerships. We worked with his successor, Anna Bly, and John Howard's federal government on the Cape York welfare reform trial. Bly legislated the Family Responsibilities Commission, a decisive structural reform that enables our elders to oblige community members to uphold family responsibilities in relation to school attendance, child protection, housing tenancy, and local laws. This restoration of cultural authority at the local level is revolutionary. One thing we are unable to get governments to understand is that reform requires us to transition from paradigm A to paradigm B. It is not a matter of fiddling around with A. A is the world of passive welfare and disempowerment. B is the new world of self-determination, true responsibility and empowerment. Our challenge is to leave A behind and do everything to create B. The problem is, Governments want to twiddle the social knobs to adjust A. They don't see that an entire paradigm shift is required. 
we have still not broken through with our reform argument. The ultimate structural reform, and most challenging, is constitutional recognition. We've been working on this large and seemingly impossible project even as we have been working on building the family budget, building school attendance, and building pride in the family home, even as we have been building Indigenous capabilities. We have been multitasking and multi-tracking our reform efforts, from building domestic livelihoods to government partnerships from families saving money for children's education trust accounts to advocating legislative and constitutional reform. In 1999, I launched my critique of passive welfare as foundational to understanding the deep social and cultural dysfunction and disadvantage of my own home community and other communities of Cape York Peninsula. Nothing over the course of the past two decades has caused me to resile from this analysis. Whilst conservatives instinctively supported our policy from the beginning, the left did not. And it is probably fair to say largely still do not today. Witness the rolling back of alcohol bans in the Northern Territory and Queensland, both instigated by the left on the basis of lofty principles with little regard to the practical realities in many communities. Is there a better example of why local communities need a constitutionally guaranteed say in decisions made about them. Those decisions should have been undertaken in true partnership with local communities. That is what a constitutionally guaranteed voice is intended to ensure. Let me turn to the entrenched problem of welfare dependency in Indigenous communities, a problem that also besets many non-Indigenous families and requires innovative solutions. The centrality of long-term unemployment and its long-term effects on individual mastery, family cohesion and neighbourhood social capital is still denied by the left, who are supposed to be the champions of the underclass. But I urge both sides to look this problem squarely in the face. My account of my community's descent into passive welfare and that of other Cape York communities was not different from W.E.H. Stanner's description in his 1968 Boyer lectures. Homelessness, powerlessness, there is a third and fatal element. In a hundred local patterns, they drifted into a vicious circle of poverty, dependence, and acceptance of paternalism. Every act of paternalism deepened the poverty into pauperism, 
and deepened the dependence into inertia. The situation was self-perpetuating and self-reinforcing. There it is, dependence and the acceptance of paternalism. Every act of paternalism deepening the poverty into pauperism and the dependence into inertia. I would speak about this 30 years after Stanner, with paternalistic dependency now well entrenched and its effects on social and cultural functioning impossible to deny. Paul Collier, the development economist's 2007 book, The Bottom Billion, argued that a billion of the world's population living predominantly in Africa and Central Asia were not beneficiaries of development, stagnating at best and more often declining. They constitute peoples and nations caught in one or more of four traps, a conflict trap, a natural resource trap, the geographic trap of being landlocked by bad neighbours and bad governance in a small country. Collier's framework was useful to me thinking about the situation of Australia's Indigenous peoples for whom development indicators are as parlous as the bottom billion but whose context, a fourth world population within a wealthy first world country, is distinct. Indigenous communities constitute stranded pockets of undevelopment. Using Collier's development frame, I zeroed in on the particular development traps Indigenous communities are caught in. Our communities are part of the bottom million in Australia, which like Collier's bottom billion, is not advancing and who suffer from intergenerational disadvantage and dysfunction. And nothing is working to change their prospects. Underclass whites and migrants are also caught in the same traps as the Indigenous underclass. In a 2017 report, the Productivity Commission quantified 3% of Australians, roughly 700,000 people, who were in income poverty continuously for at least the previous four years. They come from single-parent families, the unemployed, people with disabilities, and Indigenous Australians who were particularly likely to experience income poverty, deprivation and social exclusion. The Commission's numbers are open to debate. They're likely an underestimate. I propose this bottom million is caught in four traps. One, the trap of the natural rate of unemployment. Two, the trap of the middle-class welfare service industries. Three, the trap of the vice industries. And four, the trap of voicelessness. 
The trap of the natural rate of unemployment is ultimately the trap of passive welfare. It is the product of the macroeconomic policy management of the Australian economy, founded on the idea that there is a natural rate of unemployment, historically around 5%. Orthodox economists hold that this natural rate of unemployment is needed to control inflation. It is this conventional approach that keeps a cohort of Australians permanently unemployed. This is Australia's bottom million. They are intergenerationally disengaged from the economy, with deeply embedded cycles of disadvantage and dysfunction. They do not just include people with disabilities, but people debilitated by their situation in the underclass. This group includes many Indigenous Australians. Across the Anglosphere, governments have developed welfare-to-work policies that have been a charade, a cruel con against the poorest and least powerful. The bottom million have been exhorted and told to get off welfare while macroeconomic policy has been deliberately aimed at keeping them unemployed. By using unemployment to control inflation, the so-called natural rate of unemployment anchors the lowest price of available labour, not at the minimum wage, but at the rate of welfare payments, which is below the poverty line. A group of Australians are kept in poverty to discipline wages. Let me now turn to the trap of the middle-class welfare service industries. The welfare state has created a vast middle class of bureaucrats, academics, non-government and now for-profit organisations whose raison d'etre is to fund, organise and deliver services and programs to the underclass, all pursuant to a social policy of the state. The underclass are diagnosed as having needs. Those needs are deemed to require a service or program, which is then delivered to a passive clientele. The assumption is that services are solutions and people with needs can never have enough of them. This is a parasitic industry, a vast and invested industry. Politicians, senior bureaucrats, middle bureaucrats, minor bureaucrats, NGOs and now outsourced private sector organisations. This is the middle class harnessing the underclass as clients and as subjects of their social policies and services. It has delivered no social change in the circumstances of the underclass and is yet the primary expression of governmental compassion for the downtrodden. 
But this industry is really a callous and relentless boot on the throats of the poor. It accepts that poverty is permanent. But if we accept that the poor will always be with us, and that's that, then there is no solution to closing the gap. Given remote Indigenous communities form this welfare-dependent population, then no gap will close if we accept that class advancement for the underclass in Australia is impossible. The problem is that essential and beneficial government service delivery is mixed up with a vast panoply of services that have displaced Aboriginal individuals, families and communities from taking up their own responsibilities. Instead of investing directly into families in order to build their capabilities, we have a self-serving industry of service delivery. The third trap is that of the vice industries. The African-American economist Thomas Sowell said, the poor are a gold mine. The powerful and predatory gambling, grog and illegal drug industries are ruthless when it comes to the poor. And the underclass is riddled with addiction epidemics which are now well entrenched. No great policy energy is displayed by governments to tackle these industries and the disproportionate misery they cause to poor families. In respect of gambling, the state itself is a co-profiteer from this misery. They let these parasites literally take food off the table of the children of the poor. This will happen again in Australian homes this very night. How can we sleep knowing our governments are causing thousands of children to go without because of the stranglehold these vice industries have on those who otherwise love them? A voice should partner with governments to address grog, violence and suicide in Indigenous communities. It should also urge policy change in relation to gambling, which is destroying so many families. Which brings me to the trap of voicelessness. The Indigenous underclass have no voice. They have no power to change the policies that are supposedly made to address their problems. If a voice is to be effective and meaningful, it must be about giving the WIC people a voice so that they can take better responsibility for their own people. It must be about giving the Yolngu a voice so that they can be empowered to solve their own problems. It must be about giving the Yorta Yorta a voice this must not be a top-down socialist structure. This must be about empowering the small platoons to take responsibility in their own affairs. I urge the coalition, do not let this be a Labour voice alone. 
let this be an Australian voice. Do not let this be a voice for opportunity alone, but a voice for opportunity and responsibility. This must be a structure to facilitate local responsibility. We need conservative and liberal input to make this work as much as we need the input of social democrats. Do not be bystanders in finishing the work first precipitated by John Howard's commitment to constitutional recognition on election eve 2007 as I described in my last lecture. I do not accept my people should remain perpetually locked out of the social and economic opportunities of being an Australian. I believe the children of today's Indigenous underclass can climb the staircase of opportunity and enjoy a life better than their parents. This transformation will require a long and determined commitment to ensure these children can build the capabilities to choose lives they have reason to value. My life's work in Cape York has been dedicated to finding the methods and mechanisms for individuals and families to move from passive welfare dependency and disempowerment to agency, responsibility and empowerment. That is why I advocate for a federal job guarantee. The problem is that we have locked out the lowest strata of our society from the opportunities of Australian life. We've come to accept that they will be denied a fundamental right of their citizenship to have a job and earn a living wage. Reflect on the obscenity. The most disadvantaged prop up the macroeconomic system to manage wages and inflation. Three to five percent of the country enable the 95 percent to enjoy the advantages and prosperity that are the right of all Australians but not available to all. The Australian structure of economic prosperity and well-being sits on top of a buffer of permanent unemployment, representing the bodies of the underclass and their children. This is ground zero of the deaths of despair, suicide, addiction, violence and chronic disease. If we truly fix unemployment, we will be well on the way to closing the gap. But this requires confronting the reality of the public policy choices that are made by the Treasury and the Reserve Bank for the underclass. These decisions could not be more careless of the impact on Australia's poorest citizens, of whom Indigenous Australians remain the most downtrodden. Economist William Mitchell's proposal for a federal job guarantee would provide minimum wage jobs 
to everyone who needs a job, with government acting as employer of last resort. Through the minimum wage, inflation would be managed via an employment buffer rather than an unemployment buffer. If we are going to close the gap, not only between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, but between the unemployed and the rest of Australia, we must ensure there are enough jobs for all those able to work and who want work. Mitchell's job guarantee would pay the minimum wage, superannuation contributions and leave entitlements. It would bring the dignity of work to every Australian, including the disabled, mentally ill and extremely disadvantaged. And it is a completely superior alternative to passive welfare. The first benefit of the job guarantee is that it lifts the income of the poorest Australians to a decent level. Only those who have never lived on the dole can say that people can live on the dole. The second benefit of the job guarantee is that it will give people all of the intangible, personal, psychological and social benefits that come with work. Only those accustomed to the opportunity of work can afford the luxury of the idea that work is not foundational to the well-being of all humans. The best answer to welfare dependency is a guaranteed job. With Mitchell's job guarantee, we have the means to achieve full employment without increasing inflation. This is the third benefit. It works as an automatic stabiliser in the economy. The pool of workers in the scheme rises and falls with the economic cycle. In a downturn, the pool grows, and when the labour market picks up, the pool shrinks close to zero. A job guarantee will heal these individuals and families and their communities. It is the best solution to the despair and mental unwell-being that engulfs our saddest fellow Australians. It will lift them out of poverty and deprivation instantly. It will provide solace and purpose as well as hope, responsibility and self-esteem. It will provide a new logic and trajectory for children to have better chances. This is what we must do to change the game for the bottom million and to close the gap between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians. Let us hold this referendum. Let us create a voice that will enable Indigenous people to take back responsibility for our future, supported by the wider Australian society, but always us making the changes we want to see for our own people. And let's work to replace guaranteed welfare 
with guaranteed work and to end the scourge of welfare dependency and its twin, poverty, once and for all. Thank you. In his fourth Boyer Lecture, Noel Pearson will address education and make the case for transformational schools to lift Indigenous children out of disadvantage. Professor Ian Anderson has spent a lifetime advocating for better health for First Nations people. Thirty years ago, the Palawa man was one of only ten Indigenous medical graduates. He worked for the Aboriginal Health Service and lectured on Aboriginal health at the University of Melbourne. In his 1993 Boyer Lecture, and a warning, there's mention of people who have died, Ian Anderson opens with a blunt response to the death in custody of Arthur Moffat. He says Moffat most likely had health issues that were not investigated because of assumptions about his race. This is not a matter of a single incorrect diagnosis. It was a series of social interactions in which police and ambulance officers made dubious assumptions. On every occasion they confirmed each other's judgement. I doubt those involved would have been so certain about their judgement if Arthur Moffat was not an Aboriginal man left semi-comatose on a country railway station. If Arthur Moffat had been dressed in a business suit and found on the steps of the stock exchange, he would very likely be alive today. Arthur Moffat, like 10% of the adult Aboriginal community, was diabetic. Knowing this problem is very common in the Aboriginal community may have saved this man's life. Yet all involved presumed a semi-conscious Aboriginal man was a mere drunk. So it's unlikely that the technical knowledge alone about Aboriginal diabetes would have altered the behaviour of the police and ambulance officers. Their behaviour only makes sense by reference to particular racist stereotypes of Aboriginality. These stereotypes have their own logic, having grown out of the social relations between Aboriginal people and non-Aboriginal people on the colonial frontier. This coloured lens of white colonial heritage represent Aborigines as naive primitives, unable to handle the dangerous moral products of civilization, such as the grog. In the southeast where I live, most interactions between Kuris and non-Aboriginal people are fleeting. So when encounters do occur, people often resort to these colonial images and act accordingly. I see this encounter between an Aboriginal man and the health and custodial systems as entrenched in the broader context of relations between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australia. Experienced, skilled workers do make mistakes of this order when dealing with Koori people, not only because they lack technical knowledge, but because their actions continue to be driven by a colonial view of Aboriginal Australia. The case of Arthur Moffat raises a series of problems about medical practice and Koori people. Firstly, how do the submerged assumptions and biases of medical practitioners colour the perception of Aboriginal people and consequently shape their diagnosis and treatment of Koori ill health? Following on from this, how do the experiences of Koori people shape their encounters with medicine? I am deeply concerned about the persistence of tragedies such as Arthur Moffat's death. Yet I also feel we need to aim for more than disaster prevention. We must take heed of these experiences and prevent them being repeated. But we also need to move beyond them, to realise the powerful potential of a healing practice based on Koori values, a truly Aboriginal approach to healthcare. Just as our existing Aboriginal health services help to open new ground in community health, I believe we can lead the way again 
with a healing practice based on Kuri ideas of well-being. But we can only do this if we accept that the Aboriginal people's experience of medicine is part of a history which includes invasion and ongoing colonisation. This colonial process has disempowered people, controlling their intellectual life, taking from them the right to organise their collective life. An anti-colonial project like this must empower people by acknowledging their experience of medicine and their understanding of health issues. I don't consider my knowledge of Koori health issues to be an expertise. The academic tradition creates so-called truths about health and healing, which are accessible only to the specialist few. I consider my knowledge to be a product of my own particular experiences, certainly in professional training, but equally in being part of and working within the Koori community. So I want to acknowledge and pay respect to those individuals who have been and continue to be my teachers within my own community. Their experiences and knowledge have been influential in shaping my understanding of the issues in Aboriginal health. This approach has two implications. Firstly, it means I am speaking from the experience of being Koori. I am not speaking for Indigenous Australian communities in general. I can't speak for Murrays, Nungas, Noongars, Yongnyu, Anangu or any other Aboriginal or Islander mob. Second, in speaking from a Koori experience, I am well aware of the common prejudice that we Aboriginal people in the South East have lost our culture as well as our land. I don't accept this. I am quite passionately committed to working within what I see as being a Koori tradition. Working as a doctor within my sense of the values or practices of Koori tradition, I need a framework for thinking critically about medical work in Koori communities. I need to consider the extent to which the practice of a Western-derived medicine is counter to the empowerment of Aboriginal people and the Aboriginalisation of health care. An alternative healing practice may remain centred on the needs of the Koori body, but it has to comprehend the body holistically. I see the Koori body as much more than an interconnected system of muscles, bone or fat. The bodies which we inhabit also have cultural and social dimensions. In fact, the cultured nature of our experience of bodies is such that even the so-called objective body of clinical science is in itself a culturally shaped perception of the body. I want to see a form of healing practice which constructively engages with all those processes which contribute to the development of Koori well-being, rather than one which is only concerned with bugs and tumours and such like. This is obviously an ambitious project. In a moment, I want to lay out some of the groundwork by outlining the important issues which underlie such a transformation. We can realise the visionary potential of Koori Health by thinking with our hearts, but with one eye on the past and one towards the future. But before I talk about a future Koori Health Care practice, let's consider the history that makes these questions possible. The community-controlled Aboriginal health services emerged at a key moment in the history of the Aboriginal political movement. Until the 1960s, Aboriginal political activity was essentially a civil rights movement, concerned with issues like citizenship and equal pay. When the 1967 referendum removed the constitutional barriers to Aboriginal citizenship, Aboriginal politics was transformed. Ideas of autonomy, self-determination and sovereignty became central to the new political terrain. 
Kuris, frustrated by the continuing poor access to health services, were convinced the Aboriginal community had to take into its own hands the responsibility for delivering its health services. In this new era, the key issue became how Kuris would exercise their rights to health care. Kuris have had good reason for anger with the inadequacies of the mainstream health system. Prior to the development of the Aboriginal health services, access to any form of health care services could not be guaranteed. The most significant barrier to health care was poverty and the indifference, even frank hostility, of some health care providers. Stories like Arthur Moffat's were all too common in those days. Aboriginal people were only able to interact at the margins of the system and then often with difficulty. The Koori experience was to be treated on the hospital veranda or having to trouble a resentful private practitioner. We need to develop a new form of practice which we can use to better realise the visions of Koori people. To tackle the problems of the relationship between Kuris and the institution of medicine, we need to examine the social context of medical practice. One of the key factors which enabled the profession of medicine to develop its dominant position within the health system was an alliance, albeit an often troubled one, between the state and medicine. Medicine has, for example, the power to certify absence from work and regulate access to a vast number of pharmaceutical and other therapeutic substances. More fundamentally, medical practice is premised on people consenting to change their life practices and take medication as directed, present for surgery or perhaps change their diet. In this form of practice, relief from suffering depends on the patient submitting to a medical authority. By intervening in people's life practices at the moment of actual or potential harm, medicine transforms our bodies. It does this by imposing particular values on how we should be or behave. The medical knowledge of the body conveys a claim to truth, that the doctor knows your body better than you ever will. This scientific knowledge of the body has its cultural origins in the late 18th century development of the clinic. Within the clinic, it became possible to investigate and examine bodies and locate diseases in particular sites within the emerging cultural construct of the scientific body. In the 20th century, with the development of sophisticated mechanisms of population surveillance and new research methodologies, this terrain has extended to include not only actual disease, but also potential disease. The emphasis within contemporary medicine on prevention is founded on the notion that risk, like actual illness, can be managed by changing lifestyle. So according to this perception, diabetes is an abnormality in the regulation of blood glucose, which has particular effects on organs such as the heart, kidney and eyes. Medicine can intervene once the disease occurs in order to alleviate sickness. Alternatively, diabetes may be prevented by adopting particular dietary or exercise practices. Both in its broader social context, but also in the day-to-day relationships between doctors and patients, medicine has the power to very literally regulate or shape people's lives. This power depends on the medical perception of the body good outcomes are of course possible, but it does depend on whether patients and doctors agree on strategies of care. For the patient, such interventions must be economically and socially possible and desirable. This can be difficult enough when the patients and doctors share a class and cultural background. 
You can imagine how much more difficult it is if the advice is being given by a member of a colonising culture to a member of a colonised one. When doctors talk about how patients respond to intervention and instruction, they talk about compliance. And it's not unusual to hear doctors voice concern of poor compliance among Koori patients. This is important because the extent to which a patient is seen to comply sometimes decides their access to health care. For Koori's, well-being as a value has as much to do with family relationships as it has to do with their experience of their physical body. A Koori person with kidney failure who is treated with dialysis may find that their commitments to their kidneys conflict with the needs of their family. It's sometimes difficult to respond to the demands of an extended family with limited resources and balance this with a strict regime of dialysis. In cutting dialysis time, the Koori patient isn't necessarily neglecting their own well-being. They are operating within a framework of Koori notions of well-being. Doctors may view such patients as poorly motivated or insufficiently compliant. A patient deemed to be poorly motivated risks being judged as undeserving of costly resources such as transplant services. In this regard, medical practitioners are brokers. They regulate access to particular resources. The so-called better patients may indeed have better access to more specialised and costly resources. My point is, medical interventions are not value-free, and doctors are powerfully positioned to transform the lives of their patients. These transformations are not limited to the organic realm. Medicine is an agent of cultural change. It seeks to relieve suffering by modifying how people act and how they think. This process has profound implications for who Koori's are and how Koori's imagine themselves to be. In a moral sense, this is neither necessarily good or bad. Healing practices of any kind have such implications. However, Koori's are entitled to a healing practice which bears out our vision of ourselves and not one which reinforces the coercion and the helplessness of colonial stereotypes. This problem is integral to the operation of clinical medicine, regardless of where it's practised. This is not just a clinical or intellectual problem. It is also a matter of imagination. The doctor in the clinic needs to consider that their interpretation of patient experience is as subjective as it is objective. A Koori health practice would require a more disciplined form of imagination in order to better understand how someone comes to call on health service resources. People seek health resources because of the experience of their body. This experience has a number of inextricably linked aspects. There's the interpretation of body senses, interaction with other people through time, and a history of prior encounters with the health system. The body which enters the clinic is a product of organic and social processes. The two are so intertwined it's impossible to engage with or intervene in either realm without impacting on the other. The Koori body develops and transforms in a particular set of personal, historical and social circumstances. For Kuris, important aspects of this growth are the experience of an extending kinship system and an experience of non-Aboriginal institutions and society. Through the process of development, certain values become embodied. For example, our concept of well-being is not only an idea which we use to assess body experience, it also drives our body in particular ways.
this transforming experience of who I am and how I experience my body as a kuri is a key dynamic. It shapes how people come to the health system and following each encounter, it continues to give form to their behaviour. So Arnie's experience of a diabetic leg ulcer isn't just an experience of pain or discomfort. It also incorporates the difficulties she has in meeting family needs, getting transport or money to see a doctor, and the humiliation she feels when the doctor berates her for not looking after herself. The impact this might have on the clinical interaction can be realised if practitioners look beyond the body parts made available to them by the coloured lens of clinical science. They need to engage with the other abstract forms bodies can take. Healing is not only an empirical science. It is not just a question of choosing the appropriate treatment. By giving a name and conferring meaning to the patient's problem, the doctor takes the first step in narrowing the range of solutions available to the patient. To do this constructively in a Curry healing practice, we need a new form of medical imagination. This is possible if we take into account how the overlying dynamics of the doctor-patient and the Curry non-Aboriginal relationship shape the perception of the Curry body. Certainly, this would have helped Arthur Moffat. Likewise, it may cause some doctors to question their ability to judge a Kuri patient as poorly motivated. Some aspects of the embodied experience of Kuris in the clinical encounter are simply beyond or incommensurate with standard medical practice. The Kuri aunt with diabetes who lives in an overcrowded, inadequate house and has considerable difficulty in achieving good diabetic control has a body which bears the experience of poor housing. In cramped and inadequate living conditions, the need to negotiate a diabetic diet is likely to be one of many unnecessary stresses. Even though Artie may say she wants to maintain good diabetic control, her will may not be sufficient when a feed of fast food is both the one and only treat for the day and also keeps a mob of kids' bellies quiet. Now, it's a difficult argument to sustain using the logic of a rational clinical science that Artie's poor housing causes her diabetes to be unmanageable. However, if we take into account all the possible dimensions of her embodied experience, we might be able to develop strategies which would not be made apparent by scientific reasoning alone. Finding better housing for aunt might achieve better control of her diabetes. With a few less mouths to feed in the one household, it would be easier for her to negotiate her diet. Curry life experience and medical practice are not diametrically opposed. There is basis for interaction. They have much in common, such as the concern for control of pain or the alleviation of suffering. Understanding the relationship between Curry's and medical practice has certain profound implications. Firstly, the set of conditions which shape these encounters, such as the experience of poverty, poor housing conditions, or conflicting values of well-being, can't be viewed simply as constraints on medical practice. So for the diabetic Curry, living in an inadequate house, getting reasonable housing is as integral to the problem of diabetes as is the choice of medication. The dynamics of families and communities are fundamental to a Curry vision of well-being. So only focusing on auntie's blood sugar readings will miss some of the most important influences on aunt's well-being. Is auntie's dietary change only to be achieved by persistently telling her to eat better? How might our strategies change if we focus on the family and not the individual?
We could even go beyond that and develop strategies for community healing. Over the last two decades, some sections of the health bureaucracy have demonstrated some interest, often after considerable political debate, in improving their performance on Koori health issues. But in the politics of Aboriginal health, the institution of medicine has been somewhat more peripherally involved. Academic centres and professional bodies have taken up issues of Aboriginal health, but to date they have had a secondary role in the development of Aboriginal health services. The death of Arthur Moffat was a tragedy. Yet on a daily basis this tragedy is re-enacted, albeit in a more mundane way. Changing the relationship between medicine and Koori communities is more than removing the veneer of bigoted language. It requires us to question the very values inherent in medical practice. This requires an ongoing cultural activism, questioning the cultural basis of medical practice. Such activism takes the struggle for better health services into the academy, where medical knowledge and medical practitioners are made. Professor Ian Anderson with his 1993 Boyer Lecture. He's now Deputy Vice-Chancellor at the University of Tasmania and continues as a key advisor to the government on Indigenous health. While the audio of these Boyer Lectures is not available, the book of the full series, Voices from the Land, is published by ABC Books. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.